Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Devine, and today I was joined by Alex Stewart. Alex and I took a look at some of the football from the Premier League weekend. We focus on Crystal Palace versus Leicester City, their 5-0 thrashing. And we talk about Southampton's tightly fought victory over Bournemouth, a very important fixture for the relegation battle. We take a look at the upcoming matches between relegation teams and the fixtures for everyone who's looking like they might go down. Not looking great for Huddersfield, I'll tell you that now. Anyway, before we get started with today's episode, I just want to remind you that we have an incredibly prolific YouTube channel that you can and should check out. Uh, I assume most of you have come to the podcast from the YouTube channel, so it won't be relevant for everyone. But anyone that's just listening uh, who hasn't been over to the YouTube channel, please do go and watch it. I'm confident that you will enjoy it. And I can tell you, we've got a stellar week coming up this week. This podcast is out today on the Monday. On the Tuesday, we've got a Champions League preview video coming out about Bayern Real Madrid. It's the second leg of the Champions League there. On Wednesday, we've got a special player profile video on Paul Pogba, and we'll be asking the question, is he benefiting from having Mourinho as a coach? Where does he play best on the pitch, etc. Thursday, we've got an interesting tactics video out about Shakhtar, I believe. I might have that wrong, but I think it's right. And on Friday, one of my favourite scripts that's come in for a long time, it's written by James Montague, and it is the World Cup story of Panama. They've qualified for their first ever World Cup finals. They're obviously in England's group. And we look at the story of their qualification process. That's the first in a four-part series we're doing with James ahead of the World Cup. The other teams we're focusing on are Egypt, Iran, and the mighty Iceland. So I look forward to those. The first of them is out on Friday, and there'll be one every week uh, until the World Cup, which I'm very excited about. Um, Anyway, that's enough waffling. Uh, So thank you very much for downloading the episode. I do hope you enjoy it. Send us any tweets or emails or anything with any questions that you have or video suggestions. And uh, please like and subscribe. Please like and subscribe. Anyway, here's the jazz flute. Okay, let, let, let's kick things off, Alex, with uh, Crystal Palace and Leicester, one of the more impressive games of the weekend. Uh, Crystal Palace beat Leicester 5-0, which uh, I, I think if you'd asked anyone at the beginning of the season whether they would have seen any score lines like that, including Crystal Palace, it almost certainly would have been the other way. It's quite a stunning turnaround, really, isn't it, since Roy Hodgson came in. I mean, I think Crystal Palace had set a number of records early on uh, at the beginning of the season for most losses... And uh, worst team of all time. I think that's an official uh, official Premier League record, isn't it? They'd they'd certainly set records for not scoring in consecutive games, and and that's losing. the one. I knew there was one. <laughs> yeah, Frank Dubur covering himself in glory in that early phase. Mm. Um, well, we, we 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 covered them at the time, and we we covered Frank Dubur before he was fired, and and you talked about the reasons why he perhaps wasn't. He wasn't the, 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 the right manager for the squad at the time. It was a slightly interesting choice in terms of bringing him in. Of course, it's you know it's, um, it's a choice that Premier League clubs make, particularly Premier League clubs in positions like Crystal Palace, if they are set up. I'm thinking often, actually, of, of teams who are post-Pulis, like Palace were. They want to make a, you know, start an impetus to change the way that the football team play, and they feel like they have a squad that is strong enough, which is an argument that you could make for Crystal Palace, because one of the things that has become 
obvious now over the course of the season is that their squad definitely is strong enough to stay in, in the Premier League and they've shown that under Roy Hodgson. It didn't work out for Frank de Boer. I think perhaps it was asking too much too soon. Uh, and one thing I have been surprised about, though, and one thing I wanted to ask you about this game specifically, was uh, was the lack of Christian Benteke from uh, from the starting point. Um, when we've talked about Roy Hodgson and Palace before, we've talked about the importance of of having a player like Christian Benteke up front. Uh, and of course, he's he's only scored now three goals this season. One of them was a penalty that he was uh, afforded at four nil up against Leicester. Um, so we can understand why he hasn't started. But I wanted to ask you about the team that that did start because it wasn't quite what I would expect from Roy Hodgson, Zaha and Townsend up front together. Well, he's done this a couple of times before. Um, and Hodgson plays quite directly, um, quite vertically, transitioning with a 4-4-2, um, getting the ball into attacking areas quickly, not necessarily supporting too much with the fullbacks. Um, and what Zaha and Townsend both have a lot of is pace. And it does make sense uh, from a kind of... It, it's maybe the sort of thing where you'd expect one of them to be playing up front alongside Benteke for that reason that we've talked about, you know, the kind of the aerial outball. I think what's really interesting about this performance is that, as you correctly say, at the beginning of the season... De Boer was brought in to to get Palace playing an attractive passing possession based style of football, a transition away from a more direct hoof it chase it down kind of style that that had perhaps preceded that particularly with um, with Pulis, and this game to me was actually Roy Hodgson almost showing that actually Palace are perfectly capable of playing that way. Because what you had was, with Loftus-Cheek on, on the left-hand side, you had somebody who is, who is nominally a central midfielder, possibly even quite a, 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 a either a number 10-style central attacking midfielder or a deep-lying playmaker, but somebody whose who's general role on the pitch is one of, of creativity. He's out on the left-hand side. MacArthur, who is more of a natural winger, is on the right, but was tucking in an awful lot. You had Kabai pushing up. You had Zaha and Townsend both dropping very, very deep at times to to take the ball uh, and then drive forwards with it. And certainly the first two goals that... I mean, actually, all of the the Palace's non-penalty goals were lovely, but... The first two showed a real intelligence in movement where the ball was transitioned from wide across, across, across for a finish. Um, and it, it struck me that, that actually what you had here was a performance of, of Palace kind of almost showing what they, what they maybe would have been able to do. I'm not saying, you know, if De Boer had stuck there, Palace would be playing this way now, but this was not your stereotypical lump it forwards, use a quick guy to chase the ball down and, you know, try and get a couple of goals on the break against. Particularly Morgan is not the quickest centre-back in the world. Maguire's a bit better. Um, well, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Loftus-Cheek there. I wanted to ask you about him. I thought he was one of the one of the best players on, on the pitch. And actually, 
I, I was watching Match of the Day, and what I found interesting was that they showed a tweet from Patrick Van Anhol, uh after the game, as they do, and uh, he made a, he made uh, what I, what I thought was an interesting point. He said, "Can you can you find a, a better left sided partnership in the Premier League than?" myself and, and Wilfred Zaha, which is arguably slightly arrogant, uh, perhaps deserved after that game. <laughs> but the key there is the you know, if you look at the setup, Loftus Cheek is is on the left with Van Anholt, where, but the way that Van Anholt sees it, it's him and Zaha. And obviously you mentioned Loftus Cheek spent I'd say more time in the middle of the pitch than he did out on the left. as did obviously MacArthur scored the second goal. He was in the middle of the box by the time he scored that and Townsend had sort of swapped with him so I wondered if there was something going on there with the front two who are obviously natural wingers as well natural forward wingers was there was there a sort of mechanism by which that they were switching with their with their winger as well? Was that making it complicated for uh, for Leicester's defence? Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely what happened. And and with with Zaha and Townsend, you you they're both wingers who like to drive forwards in possession of the ball as well. It's not like um, you you get some wingers who will kind of loiter in in a wide space. And and then just push up along the touchline and deliver across. Um, these are guys who will they'll drift in, they'll cut out, but a lot of it is to do with, and we've seen it with. I mean, it all, almost with Townsend, it becomes kind of a running joke. Is you know he he runs with the ball at his feet for fifteen or twenty meters, cuts inside and blazes a shot over. So they're they're not they're not kind of out and out traditional wingers beat the man, cross the ball. And and I think what that allowed them to do is because they're both very, very natural at, at dropping deeper and dropping wide to kind of forage for the ball turn and, and push forwards, then that does naturally allow a, a link up. And Van Aanholt is a much more attacking fullback than Ward on the right hand side. So in that instance, there is a there's a link up play there, which also then allows Loftus-Cheek to, to come inside and... Again, Kabai was doing the same thing. Kabai was was pushing forwards quite a lot, and and there was a, a great deal of responsibility on um, Milivojevic uh, to kind of tighten up that central area. Although, as we also talked about before we started recording this, um, Sarko from centre back was pushing forwards an awful lot into that space that was vacated by Kabai, which not only afforded him the opportunity to intercept uh, longer balls forwards towards Vardy, but also meant that on occasion he could actually carry the ball into space. Um, and there was the, the lovely pass <clears throat> for Loftus-Cheek's goal, where he kind of strode forwards and then you know released this, this very, very um, astute forward ball. So I think... Palace showed uh, a degree of flexibility, you know, that yes, it's a 4-4-2 to start with. But then within that, you've got quite dynamic interchanges of players, which when you're up against what's kind of effectively a 4-4-2, a 4-4-1-1 from Leicester, does mean it's harder for them to know, you know, do I push up? Do I sit back? Am I expecting these two players to swap round? Am I going to have to hand over marking this guy to that guy you know it it becomes very very complicated when there is that degree of fluidity within the positioning yeah yeah 
Well, I'll tell you what, let, 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 let's focus on um, that movement that you mentioned with uh, Sacco there, because I think that's interesting. We've talked about that a lot before, the, the idea of a centre-back stepping forward um, and players like David Luiz come to mind, also Rio Ferdinand when he was playing for Manchester United. Mm. So presumably the function there is that if a defender, a central defender, has the ball and, and has the opportunity to step into the midfield line, that is that is purely to create an overload, is that right? And if so, can can you just explain uh, how that works for people? Well, it, it does two things. Um, it, it, okay, the first thing to say is it depends whether the, the player is, is carrying the ball out from a deeper position or whether they're stepping up and intercepting. So are, are they pushing their line up further um, and and already compacting the space. Or, or but in the case of Sacco, it was the first. In the it? case of Sacco, it was, it was the first. So what you're trying to do, and this this works particularly with a, a, a four four two, and that's why, um, you know, in in the sort of say the total football style, or if you're looking at you know kind of um, what Beckenbauer used to do for Bayern Munich in the seventies as well having one kind of very solid stoppery type of defender and and one defender who can bring it out effectively means that the fullbacks who were not quite so attacking back then didn't tend to get forward quite so much can tuck inside so you've still got a solid three at the base and you're then making five in midfield and clearly straight away that gives you one over on, on the opposition midfield if they're also playing in a four. Um, but what it also allows you to do is to push the space, f- push the team forwards rather to, to compress the space. So we, we looked at um, how Borussia Dortmund play um, for a Bundesliga partnership video we did. And, and what they do there, the, the, the centre-backs do push out and carry the ball to a degree as well. But actually what they do is they play the ball between themselves quite a lot as the team moves forwards up the pitch. So in either respect, what you're doing is is not just necessarily adding an additional man to the midfield space, which can be effective. And, and certainly when David Luiz is doing it, it adds you know a, a great deal of dynamism to that Chelsea midfield, which is maybe a little lacking in creativity through the centre sometimes. But what it also allows you to do is push your defensive line closer to the opposition and restrict the amount of space that they have to play in. And that's very, very important because what teams increasingly try and do is whether they're doing it because they're a natural pressing team or if they're doing it against a natural pressing team, what they want to do is is mean make the opposition have less space to play in um, because... That way, the only thing you can do really, if, if, you're, if you're setting a low block up, but you're pushing that low block higher and higher up the pitch, then the opposition can really only kind of go long over it. Um, if the opposition are trying to counter press, then your defensive position is still quite well arranged. It's just closer to the opposition goal than it would have been. So even if you lose the ball, positionally, you're still quite well set to defend that. Yeah, so. Okay having center backs that that can do that you know I'm, I'm not saying like you know Rio Ferdinand for example was was he was better than that it wasn't just about that it was, Ferdinand had enough quality on the ball to actually you know effectively swap out with a central midfielder so that central midfielder could then make their own forward run and then you're starting to create overloads further up the pitch in an attacking position 
But I think what teams are generally trying to do is get closer and closer to the opposition goal so that the teams that play these kind of intricate passing manoeuvres and, and work the ball forwards have increasingly less space to do that. And, and Palace did that very well. And for the benefit of listeners uh, who aren't so familiar, uh, very briefly, I think a, a kind of a simple description of, of an overload. I mean, I'm not the expert, but the way I see it is uh, I like to imagine uh, Pep Guardiola, who doesn't, uh, and how he um, how he views uh, the layout of a pitch and how he splits it up into different segments. And if you go back and watch some of our videos about Manchester City, you'll see us uh, illustrate that as well. And uh, as far as I understand it, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, the idea of an overload would be two opposition players uh, and three of your team players in one of those small spaces. Obviously, that means that elsewhere on the pitch, you you will be outnumbered. But in that space where the ball is, uh, you are the outnumbering team. That's correct, yeah? Yeah, so this is, you know, taking, for example, Guardiola's positional play, the, the pitch is divided... You've got the the five um, vertical divides, wide space, half space, central space, half space, wide space. And then within that as well, there, there are then segments that you can look at as horizontal divides. And the purpose is simply that you're creating a, a 2v1 or a 3v2 or a 4v3 because that allows you to have um, effectively a stationary player who can receive and pass and cause the opposition to be trying to move to shut that down. And if you have that overload, then clearly it's much, much easier to manoeuvre past or through the opposition through passing. And in a tight space, it's hard to produce a long ball that can go out to another area of the pitch where you don't have an overload. Yeah, so, I mean, you will see you'll see teams that, that, that play this way will also look often to have a... a a pivot centrally whereby if they get themselves into trouble then they'll look to switch the play very quickly to the other side um because sometimes you you can't achieve it and sometimes what what teams will try and do is they'll look to achieve an overload um but if it's not working out for them or if the the opposition press that area effectively in order for the opposition to do that either to nullify the overload or to press they are having to react to you stacking up more players on one side than the other. So they are also they're not necessarily going to be, you know, outnumbered on the far side, but but the 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 alignment of players on the pitch will have shifted, say, from the left hand side to the right hand side in order for you to try and create that overload. So there will be gaps and and space. And this is where, for example, a fullback pushing high comes into their own because if if most of the alignment is is far out on the left-hand side in your attacking direction, then your right fullback is likely to be in quite a lot of space. And if you've got a, you know, whether it's a centre-half who does it or it's a, a deep-aligned defensive midfielder, if they're then able to receive and switch the ball quickly, and we, you know, you see Man City do this time and again, for example, then there's a lot of space for that, that far fullback to then run into as the opposition try and then align their block uh, back across. And, and most most teams will not defend simply by swarming. So they will seek to try and maintain the integrity, particularly of their, their line of, of four at the back. So you would expect that it's maybe the, the, the midfielders that are shifting over, possibly a centre-back stepping in that direction a little bit. But they're not going to 
rush and that that means that it it's there's still space to create the switch and and possibly then not necessarily create an overload on the other side but certainly have space in which to run into i like a swarm you know i like a <laughs> like you know when you watch um <clears throat> when you watch kids play football and everyone just runs towards the ball well that's that's a bit like how ajax used to defend in the in the <laughs> sure. 70s they they'd literally well, they had, just they were all kids well, kind of, yeah, very energetic. Um, but yeah, they they would just sort of, particularly if the opposition fullback, sorry, if the opposition fullbacks had the ball, yeah. they go, would go, all go. just like basically tear after them and and create this sure. kind of ring around them. That's how people used to do war. Well, <laughs> kind of to uh, large numbers of casualties. Anyway, let's move on to uh, to Southampton, Bournemouth. Another big game of the weekend. Absolutely crucial win. For Southampton, we must say, and uh, and for Tadic, who scored both of the goals, one of which looked like a, a little toe poke, uh, almost effortless. Um, I think it's very important when you get into this stage of the season, if you're in the relegation battle, to have a player with the ability to sort of drag you out of that, and, and obviously not win games on his own, but take the opportunities uh, when they when they come. Uh, one of the interesting things that, that came from this game uh, is that, well, of course, both both the sides set up as a, as a four three. Uh, as a three four three, sorry, and uh, on match of the day afterwards, I was watching. Alan Shearer had some special criticism for the Bournemouth team, uh, specifically for the wing backs Frazier and Daniels, and he said that they uh, would often push high up the pitch when they had the ball, and when Southampton uh, stole the ball back and would uh, would would attempt to counter, uh, Shearer said that the wing backs weren't getting back quickly enough although they weren't doing enough defending I wanted to ask you about that specifically because we've had conversations before in which we've talked about fullbacks or wingbacks who've been specifically told to sit high up the pitch to attempt to prevent the opposition fullbacks or wingers from playing now I assume that this is what Eddie Howe and Bournemouth were doing I think Alan, Alan Shearer's uh, criticism is, is potentially a little bit misled here so I wanted to get some clarification from you on that I think Eddie Howe will have been looking at the Southampton side and saying, where are the danger points and where are the elements that we can probably be a little more confident around? And in that regard, Southampton generate width from, particularly in in the last sort of four or five games where Hughes has been starting to use this um, three at the back again, which, which... I think showed a lot of promise and we we talked about this um, in terms of how they played against Arsenal and Chelsea. But that's where the width comes from. And what Southampton have not been good at all season is scoring goals. So I suspect that Eddie Howe will have, will have assumed that Southampton will be in this formation because that's what Hughes has been doing and expected that at most he'd probably have to deal with one front man um, whether it would be Austin or, or Shane Long. Um, and by going through at the back and then countering with uh, wing backs to push Southampton back and prevent them from getting that kind of width, it's unlikely that there would be enough creativity coming through midfield. He could probably look to isolate Tadic. I think he would have been surprised that Redmond had started. Um and and that maybe changed the dynamic slightly, but but I, I think I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Howe's thinking in terms of of what he's sought to do here. 
Um, you know, he he would likely have expected to have a, at least one spare defender against Southampton's front line to use. And uh, again, you know, Charlie Daniels is a fullback, although he has played as as a left midfielder as well. But Ryan Fraser is not a fullback or a wingback. He's he's by and large a midfielder. So. This was quite an aggressive deployment of wingbacks from Howe, and clearly the intention was to push high, to force Bertrand and, and Suarez to defend, um, which, because those two do get forwards, they will have been looking to get in behind them. Um, and Daniels is a very aggressive wingback or fullback. Lewis Cook is, uh, is a good long passer of the ball. And they... I expect their game plan will have been let's let's try and get overloads again uh, in in the wide and half spaces with you know Josh King and Charlie Daniels pushing up being released by a long pass from Lewis Cook that bypasses the Southampton block and gets in behind those uh, wing backs of Southampton which necessitates them dropping backwards and it all makes sense it just didn't work um, and. And, you know, these are two very interesting sides in that Southampton and Bournemouth are the two sides who are not in the top six who most try and play like they are in the top six. So a lot of possession, a lot of passes, um, quite a kind of intricate style of, of moving the ball forwards. And the difference really between Bournemouth and Southampton this season is that Bournemouth have been able to to score more goals, and that's why it's sort of worked out reasonably well for them. Well, funnily enough, the difference is six points, which you know really doesn't seem like that it's, much. It's not a massive difference, sense. no. And and I think you know, Bournemouth obviously were, you know, they've 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 sort of been bobbing around that, you know, somewhere between twelfth and 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 ninth or eighth this season. Um, but if you look at the table, you know, between eleventh and eighteenth is a is a six point gap. Um, and half of the teams that are between 11th and 20th have have played one game more than that kind of middle band. So everyone from from Watford down to Southampton has only played 35 games, and the, the teams either side of them have played 36. So it it's really really congested in that area. But stylistically, you know, okay, Huddersfield they're they're a little bit out on their own in the way they play, and they've they've been quite consistent in terms of playing the way that they played when they came up from um, the championship. But but Bournemouth and, and Southampton are kind of uh, stylistically very, very similar, unlike most of the other teams that are in that, that zone at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think Howe's thinking made sense. You know, Hughes has kind of shown his hand with his last few games, and, and he will have seen... A development in the way that Southampton are playing and, and felt quite confident that that you know they could get a result here, whereas Bournemouth will have come into it thinking exactly the same thing. You know, Southampton have not been playing well; they've not been scoring goals. They would not have expected Tadic to score twice. You know, Tadic, Tadic has has wasted chance after chance this season and and really been frustrating. Um, so you know, I think I think Hughes. There's nothing particularly innovative about what Hughes has done here. Um, he's just stuck with a formation and it's finally paid off. Well, interestingly as well, I mean, I didn't watch the whole game. I just watched the extended highlights of this game, but there, there didn't appear to be a great deal, uh, a great number of, of chances 
other than the ones that Tadic took. And as I said, for for one of those specifically for the second goal, it was almost, it was really it was kind of a half chance anyway. It wasn't wasn't necessarily expecting a goal. I no, was, I think it was just a very good finish from Tadic. Yeah, yeah. So do, so do you think then that we can we can equate this? I mean, it's a very important win. And I think obviously the whole the whole team will have will have known that for any chance of survival, this was a must win. Mm. Um, but do you, do you think we might be able to equate this result more? down to that fact, down to the psychological, down to maybe Mark Hughes coming in, not doing a whole bunch differently, tactically speaking, but um, there was a, there was a sort of a, a, an atmosphere with the players afterwards and, and Tadic, but in particular, uh, was praising Mark Hughes and, and the new coaching staff for geeing everybody up. Do you think maybe that's m- more what this result was about? Mm, yeah, kind of. I mean, he he has made a tactical change in that he started, you know, I think after the first... I think the first game he he tried a sort of four four two, but with inverted wingers, um, and and so he was playing Redman out on the left and Tadic on the right, but with a four man defence that didn't work. And and it's it the the Arsenal and Chelsea games were where he switched to a, a the league game. I'm talking about Chelsea, not the FA Cup game, because I didn't I didn't watch that. Um, but he switched to a three at the back. Now Southampton had played a three at the back before, um, but. What he's done here, I mean, this is this is quite a kind of Chelsea last season three four three that he's gone for with with Redmond and Tadic playing as sort of inverted wingers, but but very high up the pitch, supporting a lone frontman, um, kind of cutting inside, and a, and a solid central midfield base of of uh, Romeo with. Lamina who carries it forwards a bit more and, and dribbles quite well so I, I don't think yeah he's what he's arrived at is tactically not very innovative but it is a significant change from how Southampton were playing before he arrived um, I think he's probably he's looked at where his his strongest players are and the the two areas that Southampton have been reasonably weak in all season are having confidence at centre-back and that you know we generally speaking Southampton haven't defended too badly um but but by going through at the back you immediately you bring an additional man in there um and and you kind of sort that area out a bit more um I think the swap to McCarthy consistently playing a goal over Forster has made sense um and then Further up the pitch, he's sort of been tinkering with this. You know, do we play two up front? Do we play long as a lone front man who we don't expect really to score, but we'll chase down a lot and, and we'll try and get the goals from supporting players coming in? And and I think what he did here was, you know, Redmond is, when he's playing well, Redmond is a very good direct runner. He's capable Norwich of quite City good finish. Norwich City legends. <laughs> so, you know, it it's sort of... What he did here makes sense. I think some people might question the the decision, maybe not to to have Ward Prowse on from the beginning, because Ward Prowse offers a, a, an extraordinary threat from set pieces. He's a very very good deliverer of free kicks and and corners, and maybe he could have played in the Redmond role, but he's not very fast. So I think I think what he's gone for here is is quicker players up front. Tadic drifting a little bit more into the centre and, and providing some creativity and some goal threat. Um, like it, it, yeah, it makes sense. I, I don't. 
it'll be interesting that you know their next game is is against Everton away um and... well I'm going to come on to that now in fact <clears throat> let's look at them what, what I want to do is look at the fixtures for a few of these bottom teams and I'm leaving Stoke and West Brom out of it obviously that doesn't that doesn't mean I'm confining them uh, condemning them to relegation that's well, not I, what I'm I, saying I think you can fairly confidently do that well I wouldn't want to with uh, with West Brom who appear to have pulled a Two wins out of the bag. I'm fully expecting them to win their final two games and win the league. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no disrespect to, to West Brom fans, but anyway, I'm just I'm looking at Southampton and up because I think Southampton are the most likely movers here. As we say, Stoke City and West Brom in 19th and 20th have already played 36 games. Uh, Southampton and the list above mainly 35. So when we look at Southampton, we talked about this before. Quite difficult fixtures. Uh, there's Everton coming up. The final game is against Manchester City. Mm. Um, but they have got a game in between that yeah, against Swansea City, game. which is huge because Swansea are currently in 17th place, one point ahead. That could be a decider. I decided to look at Swansea's fixtures as well. If we were to consider Southampton and Swansea as the only teams left in the fight, uh, they've got Bournemouth, Southampton and Stoke, which you could argue is a potentially easier ride, although Stoke will still be, you know... Potentially out of it by the last game, Bournemouth uh, is still a tough fixture. That that Southampton game comes up good. Huddersfield, Alex, Huddersfield are ahead of uh, Swansea City, 16th play, 35 points, 35 games. Still eminently possible for them to drop Mm. into the relegation zone. They have a horrible, (laughs) horrible, horrible set of fixtures. Okay, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal. That's not easy. No. Similarly, West Ham, who are just one place above, one point above again, have Leicester City, Manchester United and Everton, which is not by no means easy either. So I think, you know, we, we initially I was thinking that, that Southampton-Swansea fixture might be uh, huge for the relegation zone. But if it there's a, there's a very good chance that Huddersfield won't win any of their games, in which case if Southampton and Swansea both manage to win one, looking at uh, Huddersfield's goal difference, which is significantly worse than both of those previous two teams... I mean, it could be Huddersfield. Yeah, I, I think that's that's sort of the, the general feeling is that, um, I mean, yeah, Stoke, Stoke looked fairly, I mean, yeah, they showed something against Liverpool holding them to a draw at Anfield, which is impressive and, and a clean sheet for them, which will will be good. But they do seem just a little bit too adrift. Um, West Brom, I think... Uh, I think they're down, obviously, but I, I also I've been so impressed with the way that Darren Moore has has come in and pulled the side together for the fixtures. I mean, he's he's what unbeaten in four now. Yeah, um, yeah. If there was an argument for giving him the job full time, I, I, I think if he wants it, then he's made that case already. Well, you know, with with situations like that, I often feel it's a, it's sort of. A, uh, a mixture, let's say, between the new manager doing very well uh, and the uh, current stack of players not doing well enough for their previous manager. Because I find it difficult to see, you know, to see uh, the, the 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 turnaround be so extraordinary at this at this stage. Yeah, do you know I, what I mean? I think I think there's an element to which that's the case, but I do also think you know Darren Moore is somebody who he's you know he's a proper West Brom guy. He's he's played for the club he's been in the coaching staff for quite a while so you know if there's somebody who can at that point of the season instill a sense of pride and who they're playing for that kind of stuff whether or not we really buy into the importance of that I think what's more important is that next season they're going to be down they're going to lose quite a lot of their 
larger earners. Um, and West Brom do have some young players that are coming through that are quite interesting. And maybe a, a younger manager who's who's been in the coaching staff at the club for quite some time and has familiarity playing for them is the right sort of fit to develop that going forwards. Um, I think that would be an interesting thing to, to experiment with. It may not happen, but that's, that's an aside. I just think Darren Moore deserves a, a lot of credit for what's happened. Fair enough. Well, that's the Premier League. Um, we're going to leave aside the other games. Not quite as interesting. Uh, but one final thing that I did want to ask you about, Alex, um, before we finish today's podcast, is Steven Gerrard, because Steven Gerrard uh, is being mooted, perhaps more so than that now. I think it's, it's currently Monday morning. There might be more news out by the time that you're listening to this. But according to BBC News, Steven Gerrard is currently in talks with Rangers uh, to potentially take over as their head coach slash manager. I don't know which one of those uh, roles they have there. I just wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I'm not sure that either of us would know what to expect from from an appointment here. I mean, we've never we've never seen Steven Gerrard in a managerial role before. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if we're thinking about his playing style as a player, the sort of teams that he played in uh, with Liverpool. Um, what do you think we might expect of him? And and indeed, are you excited to see another high-profile uh, Premier League player taking one of those jobs? Taking one of From those jobs with nothing, <laughs> with very little previous. Ex- I mean, look, he he's he spent a some small fraction of time at Liverpool working there with uh, a youth team. I think that's all you need. Um, isn't it? So that plus, you know. Working under Rafa Benitez is, is that's probably it. Um, yeah, it I, yeah. I, I think it's very interesting. I think if that there's nothing to say that that Gerard is not going to be a capable manager. Um, I think it would be it would be equally as wrong to say, oh, you know, he's he's just another jumped up ex footballer who thinks he can be a manager without any experience as it is to say he absolutely deserves the job because look what he achieved as a player. I think sure, I think, well, I think the, both of those type, arguments are quite stupid. I, I think he probably is. I think he's worked with some, some very capable managers. I also think he's worked with, if you look at someone like, a, you know, playing alongside someone like Xabi Alonso, which he did for quite some time, you know, he's a very cerebral footballer. And, and I, I think Gerard will have picked things up from playing alongside some of those guys as much as he will having played under some very capable managers. Can, can we I say think as if well you go that, to, uh, sorry, I was going to say, I think if you go to Scotland, I mean, yes, obviously the, the pressure and the expectations around managing one of the two old firm clubs are extraordinary and it will be very interesting to see how he copes with that. However, it's not a premier league job. So he's, He's going to somewhere that maybe emotionally uh, is more taxing, but perhaps is tactically a little less difficult. And it, it might be an interesting kind of stepping stone for him. They are, you know, Rangers, they've clawed themselves back, but they still have, what, about a third of the revenue of Celtic because they've not been in the Champions League for such a long time. Um, and Celtic are going for... 10 SPL titles on the bounce next season, I think. So, Blimey. and against Brendan Rodgers, where there's a nice bit of narrative there, um, because obviously they've, you know, worked together before. So it, I think it'll be very, very interesting. I, I wouldn't, 
I, I normally I'm quite annoyed if people just get a job on that basis, you know, with with limited experience. But he has shown a willingness to to work in an academy set up at Liverpool. He, you know, he's not going straight into a massive <laughs> I like job. The, in I like the idea that you need willingness to do that. As you know, well, look, someone comes along to yeah, to but me. these these guys are you know. We're now talking about footballers who are of the era, particularly of someone of, of Gerard's quality, where towards at least towards the end of his career, he will have been raking in very serious money. Um, I'm I'm sure that someone like Gerard as well is astute enough to have commercial interests outside of football. Um, and you know, particularly if, if you look at, at what Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler have done with property development in Liverpool, they've made a huge amount of money off the back of that. So, you know, there, there, there are there are people around Gerard who will probably have, have helped him in that way. It's not like he necessarily needs the money. And what I'm saying is that by by going and working in an academy, like some of the you know some of the ex Man United players have done as well, um, you know, Nicky Butt. Uh, with the Man United under 23s you know there are there are players who have gone we're not going to try and take a top job straight away we're going to work in the youth setup we're going to learn about coaching we're going to develop ourselves that way and and I think that's quite impressive I mean maybe maybe this jump has come a little bit too quickly for him Um, but I'd say if that is the case if that does transpire that will probably be more to do with the the emotional intrusive pressure of managing Rangers than it will necessarily be because he's not going to be a good manager at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the the, the key in any situation like this anyway is that he's a very high-caliber player and he will have done enough throughout his playing career to earn the respect of the players he's about to coach. And he can't be any worse than Graham Murty, so... Sure, sure. Okay, uh, well, that wraps up there. And hopefully that'll happen. It'll be interesting to... uh, Interesting to watch that unfold. Yeah, uh, Alex, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, and I'll speak to you again next week. Yep, yeah, you too.